Our sermon passage this morning is back in the book of Philippians, where we left off a few weeks ago. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 16. Our scripture reading, however, which we will read first, is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 to 16. We'll turn there now and read that passage and then turn to our sermon passage in Philippians chapter 3. So 1 Timothy 6, 11 to 16 is our scripture reading. Brothers and sisters, as I read God's word to you, bear this in mind that it is the very word of God, that he is speaking to you. And so you have a duty to listen to him. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now turning, if you will, to Philippians 3, verses 12 to 16. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and King, again, O Lord, we thank you for your word. It is a precious, precious jewel. We thank you for the great pearls that we have in it. We thank you that it is our very food, that our souls feast upon your word. And so we pray that you would edify us, O Lord, as... Your word uh, reverberates in our minds as we dwell on the things that we have read together. We pray now for your blessing upon the preaching of your word. We ask that you would bless the one who preaches and those who hear. Oh Lord, we recognize that your spirit must be present in order for the preached word to be fruitful. And so we pray, O Lord, that you indeed would be present by your Spirit. And that the word as it is preached would be glorifying to you. That you would be honored and exalted. And that your word as it is preached would be edifying to your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it seems as though in our society today in our culture uh, as it sort of uh, lies uh, the terrain uh, the the geography the topography of our 
culture, it seems as though there are at least a couple of, of, of currents that we as believers in Christ are fighting against. And one of those is uh, the, the idea of, of the victim mentality. That everyone's a victim. And therefore, because we are victims, no one is responsible except the powers that be. The hierarchy. They're the ones who are responsible. And, and that they, uh, that is the hierarchy, it is a nameless and faceless entity that has set itself against us. And so we have no say in the matter. We have no role to play. We are just the hapless and helpless victim. Well, that, is, that is one of the narratives that is is working against us as Christians uh, in our society d- today. Uh, the other narrative that is, is working against us, and we see this increasingly uh, within the church, it's something that has been uh, sort of digested, taken in by the church over the last century, century and a half. It's something that's very much present in the wider culture, and that is, is this idea that the church must be all about the social good. It's got to be all about what's taking place on earth and the here and the now. And so a quote that will come up later in uh, the sermon is, is that by Oliver Wendell Holmes that, uh, that Christians can be uh, uh, so focused on heaven that they are of no earthly good. And that is a criticism that has been leveled against the church, that has been leveled against Christianity. And yet what, what we'll see in this passage today as we work our, our way through it is, is that God calls us to focus on heaven. That he calls us to, to focus on uh, the not yet. That he calls us to focus on, on the goal, the prize, specifically, namely, the Lord Jesus Christ, who we will experience and know in completion, in, in full, uh, in the next life. Well, it's been a few weeks since we've been in Paul's letter uh, to the Philippians, but you'll recall that in the previous passage, Paul tells the Philippians that all of the things that formerly gave him a sense of importance and accomplishment, that that gave him a a, a sense of pride about who he was, he now counts as rubbish. And and we saw that that word rubbish, that it it means excrement, that he sees it as something that's filthy and and undesirable and something that he wants to, to put away from himself. The first verse in our passage today, verse 12, it has the appearance of the beginning of a new section. And and even uh, English translations such as the English Standard Version and the NIV and perhaps others, uh, they place a section heading before verse 12. And so it can lend this sort of illusion that verse 12 is disconnected from verse 11 in the preceding passage. But you'll remember that right before verse 12, in verse 11, uh, Paul says that by any means... Uh, possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Those were the last words of the previous passage from several weeks ago. And the word attain is, that is used in verse 11 and the word obtained in verse 12, uh, these English words, they reflect the, the fact that two different Greek words are being used, but that there's a relation between the two. There's a similarity in, in concept, at least an overlap in, in concept there. It's indicative of a continuing flow of thought for Paul, that, that he's not just arrived at a, at a disjunction, um, that he's flowing on. Something is out in front of Paul, something that he hasn't yet laid hold of, but that he desperately wants, and he strives to attain it. And it is the prize. 
as he refers to it in verse 14. And Paul uses the imagery in this passage of an athletic contest to describe his desire to obtain the prize. Now, in our passage this morning, and really everything that we covered in chapter 3 so far, Paul is describing the already and the not yet of the Christian life. We have already been given many things, great gifts. We have been given Jesus Christ. As he said back in, in, verse, uh, in verse 8, he suffered the loss of all things in order to gain Christ. He's already gained Christ, but he is waiting to gain the not yet of the faith, namely the resurrection of his body from the dead, communion with Christ for eternity, being perfected in righteousness, and all of those, those wonderful blessings that we will enjoy when we go to be with the Lord. The not yet's are the prize. These are the things that he wants to obtain. These are the things that will make him perfect or perhaps better. The English Standard Version uses the word perfect there in verse 12, but perhaps better is the word complete. He hasn't obtained these things. He's not perfect, as he says in verse 12, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And here in verse 12, once again, we bump up against divine sovereignty and human responsibility, and, and we're bumping up against our very culture, which, as we've already mentioned, is, is, is trying to push us away from a sense of personal responsibility. In verse 12, Paul is saying that, that we are to do that which God has called us to do. He says, Paul says he has been seized by Christ, and therefore he wants to seize Christ. He has been laid hold of by Christ, and so he wants to lay hold of Christ himself. The verb translated, make my own, it can also be translated seize or lay hold of, as the idea of, of grasping with your hands. Now, oftentimes we say in order to, to maintain and to uphold God's absolute sovereignty over our faith in Jesus Christ, over our salvation, uh, that it's not how hard you cling to Christ, but how hard Christ clings to you. And that is true. And nothing that is, has been said or is about to be said takes away from that. Christ is sovereign. You belong to Christ because he has laid hold of you. Nothing, as he says in John's gospel, can take you, can snatch you out of his hand. But that doesn't and shouldn't prevent you from clinging to Christ even as he clings to you. Now, the following analogy I'm going to give you, it breaks down. All analogies do when we're trying to describe the Lord or trying to understand Him. Uh, because God is not weak in any way. But when a child is frightened and being held by his father, the child clings tightly to his father, even though his father is the one who's holding him up off the ground. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He's going to press on. He's going to, he's going to lay hold of. He wants to seize Christ, but he recognizes that it's Christ who has seized him. Paul is saying in a sense that because he has not already obtained the prize, he will press on to make it his own because Christ has made Paul his own. Christ has done the work. Paul acknowledges that. He says nothing to take away from that, but it isn't a one-sided relationship. Paul is taking responsibility for that for which he can take responsibility. 
And here in verse 12, he's reiterating what he said back in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility linked together. Now when Paul says that he presses on, that word that's translated press on, and it's translated that way in all of the major English translations of this passage, when he says press on there, he's using the same word that he used back in verse 6 of chapter 3 when he described himself as a persecutor of the church. The verse there can mean to, to persecute or to pursue, depending on the context. And so what we see here is that the zeal that Paul formerly had in pursuing and persecuting the church, he now has for pursuing this prize that's before him. But despite the zeal that he has to obtain it, a considerable zeal when seen in relation to his persecution of the church, he makes it clear in verse 13 that he has not obtained it. He says in verse 13, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But, he continues, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Now, Perhaps, as we read this passage, if you had a chance to read through it before uh, this morning, you read this and you read Paul's command, or talking about himself, that he, that he presses on, and you thought to yourself, what does it mean to press on? Well, verse 13 tells us what it means. He's explaining in verse 13 how he presses on to make the prize his own. He forgets, or perhaps better, according to one commentator, pays no attention to what lies behind, and he strains forward to what is ahead of him. Now, now, Freud and his followers would say that you are defined by the things that happened to you in your past. That those, in a sense, mark your destiny. That you are a product of, of what has happened to you. And, and, and perhaps there is a, a, a kernel, a nugget of truth to that. Undoubtedly, early childhood circumstances, incidents, they shape us. They have an impact on us. But what many would have you believe today is that you can never escape your past. You can never move on from it. That, it. that it carries forward into your future and it will dictate to you who you are and what you will do. And so, so many people today and so much of our culture is preoccupied with this idea that our identity is, is formulated by what's happened to us in the past. Paul is saying that he's not looking back to that. You've probably heard the analogy, and so I don't want to uh, uh, belabor it this morning. The, the analogy of a, of a runner, you, the Summer Olympics happened earlier this year, uh, or perhaps it was the winter, I, what was it? I don't remember. The Winter Olympics, the Summer Olympics, the Olympics took place. And one of the things that runners don't do when they're, they're running is, is if they're in the lead, they don't look behind them to see how close the next guy is. The Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, the jockeys aren't looking behind them to see how close the, the next horses. They're, they're looking ahead. They're looking to the finish line. They're looking to the goal. So Paul is saying he's not paying attention to what is behind him. He, he hasn't completely forgotten it, obviously. He just raised up uh, the issue of his past in the preceding passage. He talked about the fact that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. As to righteousness, he was blameless. That he was a persecutor of the church. He's, it's not as if he completely ignores who he was. And yet all of those things he counts as rubbish as we saw. He counts them as significant. They don't shape who he is today. 
He pays no attention to what lies behind. He strains forward to what is ahead of him. That's how he presses on. This is his part, his responsibility. He understands that his salvation is a monergistic work of God. He knows that he's not responsible to save himself, and yet he understands that he is responsible, that God has commanded him to do certain things, and he's, he's going to do his best to do those things. And so he wants to leave the past in the past. He wants to look ahead of him to the finish line, to the prize that awaits him. And so we talk about this idea of personal responsibility. And now the other criticism of Christians is that they're, they're so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. That's a criticism that is leveled uh, quite frequently. It's, it's something that, that perhaps you get when you talk to, to people about your church, when you talk about your faith, when you talk about, about who you are as a Christian, and they, they say, well, tell me about your church. Invariably, they, they will ask, and you probably, how big is your church? What does your church do? What kind of things do you do? Do you, do you have mission trips? And do you do this and you do that? Do you, do you have a soup kitchen? Do you, do you have all of these things? And so there's this, this almost an implicit and sometimes an explicit pressure upon the church to completely alleviate what ails our society. But Paul here is calling Christians to focus on what lies ahead, not, not to be of no earthly good at all but to be focused on what lies ahead, to think of heaven and the prize that awaits you there. Now, C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, he responds to the criticism that Christians are so heavenly-minded that they're of no earthly good. And he says this, A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking. But one of the things a Christian is meant to do, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the world, of the other world, that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. The problem for the church nowadays is not so much that she's so heavenly minded, she's of no earthly good. It's that she's so earthly minded. The push is to redeem culture. To transform the city, to transform the country. What Paul is talking about here, what, he, what he's calling us to do is to remember that we're pilgrims. That this earth, this, this world, this nation, this place, it's not our home. It's not our, our permanent place of residence. Certainly it's fine to seek to improve upon the conditions in which we find ourselves, but that's not to become our sole focus, our primary goal. Our goal is Jesus Christ. And so, it's not wrong to contemplate our deaths and what happens after death. It's not wrong to focus on heaven and what that will be like. How many of you think about that? To any great extent. Certainly when we lose a loved one, we think about it more. But we tend to think about it far less when death is not staring us in the face. It's good to revel in the fact that if we believe in Christ, we will see Him face to face and never be plagued by sin or its effects in this world. It's good to ruminate on what it will be like when our souls, assuming we die before Christ's return, are reunited with resurrected and perfected bodies in which we will live for the rest of eternity. 
it's good to give thought to these things. Sometimes our faces are pointed down to the ground. But Paul is saying that the consideration of our future life with Christ is how we press on. It's how we make it. It's how we survive in a fallen world. And he continues in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now Paul's use of an athletic metaphor in these verses, it indicates just how challenging it is to live life in this manner. Now, I understand that, that many of you, I'm not, that much of, many of us perhaps, maybe, maybe only some, we're not athletes. I have no athletic interests for myself. I enjoy watching athletes do their thing. And so perhaps this metaphor isn't as, as necessarily appealing as, as something else. Paul speaks similarly in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. In 1 Corinthians, he's using an argument from the lesser to the greater. If athletes work extremely hard in order to receive a prize that will perish... How much more ought we, Christians, to strive for a prize that will never perish? That's what he's saying. And even for Olympic athletes in our day who receive a really nice medal that's probably worth some money, it's still perishable. It's going to, be, it's going to fade. It's going to be destroyed. It might be stolen. And you hear reports of things like that happening. Paul is saying strive for the imperishable prize. And so again, Paul knows that salvation is in God's hands, but he is calling upon the Philippians to abandon any disposition toward complacency in their walk with Christ. Christ did not save you for you simply to be a stick in the mud and to do nothing. Paul understands that living life in a fallen world as a believer means that we live in constant combat. And so we have to strain, we have to strive, we have to press on toward the goal of the prize. We have to fight against the enemy of our souls. And so uh, often, Paul will use the weapon, uh, the, 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 I'm sorry, the enemy uses the weapon of lulling us into a waking dream. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, instead of an athletic metaphor, Paul uses a military metaphor to convey a similar point to what he's making in the, uh, to the Philippians in our verse. He writes to Timothy in verse 12 of chapter 6, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul is writing to Timothy, his, his son in the faith. He knows that Timothy is a believer, and yet he tells him to take hold. It's the same word. To take hold, to seize, to grasp. To take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made the con good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Already in the not yet. You have it, but seek after it. Now, in our passage, Paul isn't giving the Philippians a command like he is to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. Instead, he is giving the Philippians exhortation through example. There aren't any imperatives to be found in our passage this morning. No commands. There's, there's one uh, in the last verse. There's an infinitive that has an imperatival force for those of you who care about such things. But there aren't any commands explicitly found in our passage. But, but Paul is using himself as an example to exhort the Philippians. To, to encourage them. 
to spur them on. He's challenging them by pointing to his own practice. And then he explicitly tells them in verse 15 to follow his, his example. Let those of us who are mature think this way. But before we get into verse 15, we should consider the last phrase of verse 14. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is the prize that Paul presses us uh, presses on to win. Christ Jesus. Upward in verse 14 might also be translated heavenward. This is a call to look beyond our present earthly circumstances. And Paul will speak even more clearly about this in a few, a few, for a few verses later in verse 20, where he tells the Philippians, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We look heavenward because it is from there that we await our Savior. It is from there that our Savior will come. And so Paul is saying in verse 14 that God is calling us to set our minds on the upward, the heavenly things. And we touched on verse 15 briefly, but in this verse, Paul tells the Philippians to think in the manner that Paul does. And so though Paul is using, he's been using an athletic metaphor, what he is talking about here is the discipline of the mind rather than of the body. And, and those of you who are athletes, those of you who have competed, you understand that it's a mental as, as, as well as a physical uh, endeavor. Our culture is obsessed with physical transformation, whether it's the transformation of an old run-down house into a beautiful renovated home or the transformation of an out-of-shape, overweight body into a sleek and powerful one. Now, we do await the resurrection of our bodies, but that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about the transformation of our minds. He's telling us how we ought to think as Christians. Christians think differently than the world thinks. We think Christianly about matters. And Paul touches on this in a similar way in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We are to set our minds on Christ. He is the ultimate prize we are hoping to win. And Paul indicates that those who are mature should think this way. They ought to think this way. And by inference, the opposite is true. An earthly-mindedness is a sign of immaturity. The inability to see the bigger picture is an element of childishness. How often have you looked upon children who are playing a game and, and you recognize as an adult, that, that the game, is, it's just a game, but those kids don't take it that way. It's very important to them. And they must win. And they will get mad if they don't. Paul encourages the Philippians by telling them that God will sort through their immature thinking. And so, just because we may think in an immature way, just because we, we haven't uh, attained the way of thinking that Paul has attained, it, it doesn't mean that it's a deal breaker, that it's over. And that shows really the level of responsibility that we have, doesn't it? It shows us that, that if we fall short of the ideal that Paul is presenting to us, it's still going to be okay. Because salvation belongs to our God, it does not belong to us. 
We are not responsible ultimately for our salvation. Well, Paul then writes in verse 16, Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Of greater concern to Paul than the potential immature thinking of the Philippians is the possibility that they might give up the ground that they have attained, the ground that they have taken. Verse 16 shows the connection between thought and practice, between our mindset and how we live our daily lives. The words translated hold true and attained, these are military terms. Attained has the sense of overtaking or arriving before the opposition. We've got to get that high ground before the enemy does. Paul uses the same word translated as hold true in Galatians chapter 5, verse 25, where he writes, keep in step with the Spirit, where the metaphor is one of soldiers marching in lockstep with one another. Hold true. And so the picture we get is of people walking together, maybe marching together on a pilgrimage. And what Paul is commanding them is not to let themselves fall back, to fall out of formation, to give up ground. He wants them to hold the line and to keep advancing together as one. Well, I'm not so sure that it's ever really been a problem for Christians that they are too heavenly minded for any earthly good. That's the criticism as it has been leveled. And yet the fact that Paul is calling on the Philippians way back in the first century to be more heavenly minded shows our propensity, even from the very beginning, to be earthly minded. That's our nature. That's what we want to do. Is to think only about what's going on in the here and now down here on earth. There's a huge push for Christians, as we've said, to redeem or to transform the culture that we are in. That has become the stated purpose of many churches, many individual Christians, but the words of C.S. Lewis are still very helpful. If we don't focus on what's ahead, if we don't set our eyes firmly on the prize, the finish line, and what Christ will give us when we cross that finish line, we will have no effect on the world. Because we have no one whom we may present to the world. We've lost our focus on Jesus Christ. We've lost sight of Him. And all we have to give to the world are programs, things, comforts, earthly comforts. Paul here is saying that the stated purpose, the goal for every Christian is Christ Jesus Himself. We are to seek to attain Him insofar as it rests upon us. We can't let our eyes shift to the right or or to the left. We cannot lose focus on Him. If we do so, then the church, the church will be a place where Christ is not pointed to. But all of the social benefits that the church offers are. As we seek Him, as we make our pilgrimage through this life, we will have an impact on those around us. It's inevitable. If you focus on Jesus Christ, if you seek to be obedient to Him, what does He command you to do? Love your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
If your focus is on Him, if your desire is to be obedient to Him, then you will love your neighbor, and that's the way you impact the wider culture. We will have an impact on those around us, but that is not the the purpose, the, the end goal of the Christian life. We realize and we profess that salvation belongs to our God, but we cannot just shrug off our responsibility. We are called to press on toward our goal of obtaining the prize, eternal life with Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the body. We press on to make Him our own because He, Jesus, already has made us His own. And that, brothers and sisters is the good news. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we do indeed thank you that Christ Jesus has made us his own. We pray, O Lord, that we would strive to make him our own. We pray that we would cling to him, that we would reach out and take hold of him. We pray, dear Lord, that we would indeed love the Lord our God with everything that we have. And that we pray that in so doing, as we desire to be obedient to you, that we would love our neighbor. Lord, we pray that you would not allow us to lose our focus, to shift our sights. We pray, dear Lord, that you would help us to move away from our earthly mindedness. Please, O Lord, again and again, direct our minds to you, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.